Can you um, introduce yourself and describe what you do? Hi, I'm Bill Powers. I own Half Gallery in New York. I also write about art for uh, Purple Fashion Magazine, Muse Magazine. I wrote for the New York Times for 15 years. Uh, I do a monthly interview column now for Art News. You, um, you've been quoted as, as talking about wanting to bring more people to the art world. Um, you want to make everyone an elitist. Do you still think that's true? Yeah, well, I think a lot of problems culturally are that everything's geared towards like a 15-year-old boy. So maybe we should try and educate those people instead of treat them like perennial teenagers. How do you mean? Uh, you know, just the kind of dumbing down of film and music. And I, I feel like there's not a patience for acquired taste that maybe there used to be. I mean, I remember, you know, listening to something like The Talking Heads and you wouldn't even like it the first three times you listened to the album. And these days, you know, unless you have a number one single or two million hits with your first go at it, you're washed up. And I know we're talking about contemporary art, but I think some of that can bleed over into all uh, arenas of culture. I think the the interesting thing, especially about what you've done, is is doing things that have a wider reach, right? So the the books, the magazines, um, their distribution is is bigger than just a gallery or say the the show you've been involved in. And I I think a lot about you know the bench of the Knicks um, as a as a fitting analogy for where it would be great if art could go because the the bench they don't play they don't touch the ball all year. Um, and yet their reach as basketball stars is huge, but the the bench in the art world are obscure. You... I mean, uh, the thing that I've always liked about the art world is that the onus is on you as the viewer or collector or, uh, you know, newbie into that into that world, is that you have to go out and do the research and educate yourself, but that it's possible that, you know, if I want to go to the new, uh, like Brad Pitt movie and roll up and ask him about, um, his performance or how he got involved, that's not possible. There, there's ropes and guardians and buffers to keep him from, uh, people who are having that experience. But in contemporary art, I can go to a, Julian Schnabel opening or uh, Jeff Koons opening and there's a good chance Jeff is going to be there and I could go up and get, ask him about the work and I like that I, I, sometimes it can be different in Europe with private openings but every opening in the United States is, is open to the public so as long as you know when and where it's happening um, you're welcome to, to go and it's free and usually the artist is there. But for most people, it's a pretty um, impenetrable, God, that's not a word, uh, but you know, it's a, it's a pretty closed system and pretty intimidating. We were, we were talking to Hans Ulrich Obrist earlier this uh, week, and he was talking about how he just picked up the phone when he was 16 and like wanted to get in to see um, the artist's studio for show and vice. And yeah, he was capable of doing that, but that's pretty brave. And like, you're. Well, that, but so, but what you're saying is just people lack the drive or the curiosity and the kind of um, proactive spirit 
to engage that I don't I think that's kind of a false narrative the idea that the art world is intimidating or impenetrable because I just talked about how you can go to any opening you want as long as you look up what gallery is showing what artist and when you call the gallery and ask them what time the opening is and you can go and I think if you look at a lot of writers that I know, whether it's Dave Hickey or Jerry Saltz, those guys are self-taught. They never took art classes. Um, you know, well, in Dave Hickey's case, he started off writing about music and then moved over into art. But Jerry Saltz was a truck driver that educated himself about art and started writing about it. But so you, you honestly don't think there's, there's like the... Well, what would be intimidating about it? Well, it's intimidating for lots of people. People, but, but are, people are, say that. But what does that actually mean? I, I think probably that. Um, like what part of it? You mean like walking into a, a gallery that has paintings hanging? Or? Yeah, I mean obviously that's not intimidating. But so it's which? The, which but that's what I'm saying. Which aspect of it is intimidating? I, I think probably the. Um, it's very clicky. So if. Uh, you mean as opposed to fashion or I'm not uh, saying movies? Or, I mean, every creative, every creative industry has that segment. Absolutely. And it's, yeah. it's not a criticism of that. It's just yeah. a, a, a questioning of... I mean, I'm just asking you because I think most of the interviews that I do, if there's a little bit of friction, if we agree with each other about everything, then it's just a lot of padding each other on the back that you know friction creates tension which i think can make room for dialogue absolutely and and that definitely is the only way to move anything but i am a little bit tired of hearing people saying that the art world is intimidating or you can't enter it i mean if you're talking about buying work yes dave hickey who i mentioned earlier will say the difference between a merchant and a dealer is that a merchant will sell to everyone and a dealer sells to almost no one. Is, where do you position yourself? Where do you position Half Gallery? Are you a dealer or a merchant? Uh, I mean, I don't think that I'm, I snob out on people and you don't have to be on a museum board uh, to, to buy something. But I think when people take the time to learn about the artist and... and um, the context and where they're coming from, that means a lot more to me than somebody that just comes in with a checkbook. And Half Gallery is really different from an, another um, thing you do or Exhibition A, right? Where you, you sell. Yeah, well, that's what I think. You know, I, I also um, run a print company that I started in New York called Exhibition A, and we will do original prints uh, with a bunch of different artists we've done. Uh, actually, MoMA acquired the Nate Lohman, uh, the Richard, MoMA acquired the Richard Prince print that we did, the Jeff Elrod print that we did, and the Joe Bradley print that we did. But anyone could have bought them when they uh, went online for sale initially. So isn't that you sort of admitting, though, that the... Well, that's different. I mean, like everything, there can be different tiers that... Um, when you're doing a print or edition, yeah, hopefully that's something that can get someone that's younger or maybe of less means that they can still have something by an artist that they like that might not be available to them otherwise. Uh, 
but for those artists then to have those pieces acquired by an uh, institution like the Museum of Modern Art is nice because that means it's recognized um, on a more critical or institutional level. And and surely distribution is a is a thing, right? Less less people can go into a gallery space than can go onto a website and look at stuff. Uh, well, I feel like with the social media and art fairs such as we're at, we're at now, that that's expanded. That I don't think you know. It's not like we're sending you know faxes or transparencies to people that are interested in a particular painter. What um, wh which do you prefer, sort of curating for the physical gallery or doing stuff for exhibition? Well, because I usually I'm at the gallery most of the time. It's fun to do uh, installations because I get to live with them for a month or six weeks. So it's nice to see how um, something changes or you pick up. Uh, different nuances in, in, in a painting or a sculpture that you hadn't realized initially. And so you're kind of forced to really look at it. I always like uh, this artist, John Armletter, um, who I interviewed recently, said that art can either be seen or looked at. And I, I, I thought that was an interesting way to, to think about viewing something. What do you think he was talking about? Sort of... Well, in his case, it was it was making reference to a French composer who I believe in the 1920s made something called furniture music. And that was music, uh, I think it was only three chords, and it was played again and again and again. So it was almost the precursor to ambient music. And it was made only to be heard, but not to be listened to. And so I think that inspired John Armletter to, to apply that same reasoning to contemporary art. It's especially interesting when you think about his work, right? Sort of massive fields of color. I mean, I, I think John Armletter is massively underappreciated and the guy has such history, but also he's a little bit of a... Um, outsider in that he also said that his art only has meaning to him while he's making it and I just thought that was incredibly refreshing because these days people get so nervous when they have some uh, you know traction either in the art market or, or, or with museums that that almost seems like a dangerous thing to say that that it's only in the experience that it's meaningful. You've also, you've, you've, I mean, it's interesting we're talking about um, John Armletter because you, you've looked at not outsider artists, but maybe artists that aren't in the traditional, you know, ha haven't just painted a picture and put it in a gallery. So um, notably Steve, I'm going to say his last name wrong, but um, the French uh, street artist, right? You've, you've done... Well, I think it's cool that, you know, because there's, there's no real rules in the art world, uh, ultimately it's you create a show or an exhibition and people either respond to it or they don't. That because there's no real rules in the art world, the people that are inside it, meaning the curators and the, um, 
the dealers, they want to say, oh no, this is the pathway. You can't do it like that. You have to do it like this. So they kind of create these, create these fake parameters that if someone like Geneve Figgis, this Irish painter we just did a show with who was discovered by Richard Prince on Twitter two years ago, winds up getting reviewed by the New York Times or Art Forum. I think some people are up in arms because they don't accept that as the normative path to recognition in the art world. But you don't really care about that, do you? Uh, I, I mean, I think ultimately, like George Kondo once said that he's in the business of creating orphans. So you, whether you're making a, a, a painting or you're putting a, you're trying to get exposure for a painting in the end the object has to uh, survive on its own someone wants to find uh, culture as that which outlives the lifetime of its maker so if you look at it in 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 that from that perspective we're all just custodians let's talk about talk about your books you you write a bit you quote i've tried to do a book every year for the last uh, 4 years so in 2012, I had a book called What We Lose in Flowers that Karma put out and Richard Prince did original cover art for. Uh, the next year, I did a book called Interviews with Artists that Kagosian published, and that was uh, 22 collected interviews, everyone from Ed Ruscha to uh, Jeff Koons, uh, Kara Walker, Rashid Johnson. Uh, we used an Adam McCune image for the cover. Then last year, Fulton Ryder uh, put out a near-future dystopian novella called Boat People. And right now, I'm working on an adaptation of Balzac's The Unknown Masterpiece. And why do you do these books? Uh, I think it's important to make room for new thoughts. And interviewing artists, I just learned so much. And just, um, I think with some of the like names I've dropped or their quotes that I've inserted here. I think it really goes beyond just uh, painting in the art world, but it's a lot about contemporary living and almost uh, contemporary philosophy. So for the interviews, I really get a kick out of that. And for writing, I just, I think it's interesting to contribute culturally and it would be kind of depressing if I just, sat around selling stuff all day what's um what's been it, it been like to to be on the the bravo show has that been a good experience uh you're talking about the bravo show work of art where i was a judge for two years yeah. you know it was funny I, I sometimes you don't realize what you're getting into until after the fact so when I went to one of their promotional events and I was there with some real housewives and people wanted to get a picture of us together, I had some more existential questions that night going to sleep. But I was really proud of the people that I worked with. So uh, whether it was uh, Simone Depuri or Jeannie Greenberg or Jerry Saltz or China Chow, it was fun to work with those guys. And there was a lot of dialogue um, that didn't make it into... Uh, the final episodes that was just a lot of fun and I don't know if you watching saw any of these but there was one that we did um, where the winner was inspired by Ai Weiwei's imprisonment at the time of filming he was uh, in jail and missing 
So to think that you have a conversation about uh, an artist who's a political dissident in China on um, a show on a network that shows the Real Housewives of New Jersey felt fun in kind of a disruptive uh, um, I don't know it, it, it seemed like you were kind of sneaking something past the network and also in the same way I guess that the, the books much, must as you were saying sort of open you up to new experiences and new thoughts the, the show must have done the same as much as people can roll their eyes and say oh you were on network TV uh yeah, I don't I don't know if it really Honestly, career-wise in the art world, it might have been more of a detriment than it was a uh like more of a liability than it was a a benefit, but there's part of me, you know, people were so harsh in their judgment of the artists on that show as if we were picking people out for the next Venice Biennale when, you know, someone had three hours to make something based on these very like strict uh, uh, rules about what it should be. So in that way, it was fun just as kind of a, a performative exercise. But it, it's funny that we, we did two seasons. I think the season finale the first year had 1.5 million viewers, which I thought like, oh, wow, that's like a huge hit. But in TV these days, that's like an abject failure, apparently. It, that, though, then brings me back to sort of where we started. You know, you just said that the show that, that seemed like a, a big success was actually a detriment to, to your position in the art world. And doesn't that just... Well, I think just because people can snob out and, yeah. you know, you, you, we all get to decide what judgments we want to internalize from other people. But it does sort of... Uh, beg the question you know that the art world can be really um well i think in any industry you're in the people who do the least amount of work are usually the people who try and control others around them the most how do you mean uh because the art world in many ways is an unknown and none of us will know who will still be around in a hundred years everybody wants to pretend like there's a checklist or some secret society that if you get into or know the right handshake that somehow um, you'll be redeemed or saved or, or uh, make it past but I mean someone like Basquiat he was not selling a lot of work, you know, when he died. Someone like Steve Perino, um, who died in a motorcycle accident, you know, 10 years after his death is selling for a, a million dollars. But at the time, he did not have a lot of uh, traction or recognition towards the end of his life. For, for you, Bill, what's, what's the point of it all? Why do, you, why do you keep doing it? And why do you keep doing so much you know people have criticized you for for doing so much you're you're um you're in everything um what's the point you know sometimes i think about how do, how do we how does culture get made and if you think about it we all have instincts and instincts give rise to behavior and uh repeated behavior creates rituals and rituals are the basis for culture so it's interesting to see 
how these things will happen globally in, in, in different cultures that seemingly have very little overlap. And I think art is one of those things. You know, we don't know what happens when we die. Um, we don't really even know that much about how our own brains operate or what dreams mean. And so I think we can use something like art to fill in the gaps for the unknown.